General Baptist Ministries has been called by God to exist for the church. We aren't here so General Baptist can help us do ministry. We are here to help the church do ministry and to fulfill its commission by God to make disciples of all nations and preach the good news to every man, woman, boy, and girl. We partner with churches because we believe that we can do more together than any one person or church can do alone. Hi, I'm Vince Daniel, Vice President for National Missions, and I want to welcome you to this episode of Doing Together podcast. Doing Together is about sharing the ways that General Baptists partner together so that your church can fulfill its calling. As we were crafting this season's topic for the podcast, we wanted to dig into some questions and ideas that are they're not explicitly the focus of our denominational work. We wanted to talk about some things that are of broad interest to our people. For example, we wanted to talk about our, our history, traditions, celebrations of holidays, and even some of the biblical and theological issues. Today's topic is one of those podcasts. What Bible people use has often been a controversial topic. Many General Baptists take this as a major point of faith, and we have some churches and even entire associations that have withdrawn from fellowship over the years because of disagreements over the use of some translations. Many of our churches believe that only the King James Version should be used. Many of our churches use a variety of other translations. To be clear, today's podcast isn't intended to answer which one is right. Instead, we want to shine some light on how we got the scriptures that we have, including questions about English translations and and how the Bible is still the inspired and infallible Word of God. That is, the only reliable guide to Christian faith and conduct, as our statements of faith say. And so for this podcast, I talked with our president, Danny Donovan, about how we got the Bible. Hey, Danny, good to have you with us today. Thanks. It's good to be able to talk about this. I get to geek out a little bit and, yeah. uh, you know, it puts me in my wheelhouse sometimes. Yeah, those those students of the Bible, when you bring up those questions of, hey, let's talk about the Bible, you can almost, you, your your eyes kind of light up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like Christmas morning, right? <laughs> so that that's a future podcast that's going to be that's coming. Right. That's yeah. right. That's right. Sure. So, uh, I want to just kind of walk into a couple questions over the the podcast today, if we can. And one of those questions, and I'll, and I'll just kind of give an overview. And I want to talk about uh, the idea of just principal text or, or text, and then we're going to talk a little bit about translations, and then we'll talk about canon and just how how we got what we currently have. Sure, but. Um, but if you could help us out, because I think um, depending on who's listening, whether it's a pastor or a layperson, uh, maybe it's a Sunday school teacher in the in, in the church, um, for the guy that's on their way to work, uh, can you unpack or maybe just walk us through a little bit? When we say text, what's the general understanding of what that is for the layperson? All right. So when we say uh, the text, we are, are talking about the the words that we have. Uh, of scripture, the the text itself, the the literal words in the book. And as we think about text, we are going to immediately be talking about text. And whenever I'm, I'm going to talk about it here, we'll be about the original text that was written by the the people, the author of the book, as close as we can possibly get it, we want to be able to say, okay, this is what Paul said. Mm. This is, you know, the, that text. And therefore that requires us to then what Paul wrote, Paul wrote in Greek. And so we have to be looking at Greek texts. And when we look at the book like Genesis, we're going to be looking at Hebrew because that was what Genesis was written in. 
And for the most part, we're talking about those two languages. We're talking about Hebrew and we're talking about Greek. Now, there are a few parts of uh, the, the scriptures that have Aramaic, which is another language. You've got some sections of Daniel. You've got some sections of um, part of a chapter in Ezra. Um, there's a verse in uh, Jeremiah. And then there's just a few other words you know, scattered out in both the Old and New Testament in Aramaic. But for the most part, you're talking about Hebrew in the Old Testament. You're talking about Greek in the New Testament. And we're trying to, when we talk about the text, we're talking about how do we get to the actual thing as best we can that was originally written for us to be able to, to you know, like you said in the intro, uh, we can get to the only reliable guide that we have to Christian faith and conduct. Mm-hmm. And so... And and so what you're saying, I think, is really important for us to understand, especially for for most, well, all of us now uh, that are currently living have lived in the age of the press, right? Or, or, and so the idea of trying to take something back to not just the original document, but the original thought of the person who wrote it down, and 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 get that text idea uh, is kind of a foreign thought for us. We because it's just always been here. Right, so we we are in a we we operate in a context where we can make a copy of something without any difficulty, right? Right, um, and we have copies of the New Testament and the Old Testament available to us on digital devices. We have them, probably many books of them in our homes, and it's interesting. Most people don't realize this, but that's not anything like that. Nothing that's not been the case for most of the history of the church, even. Right. Um, you think about that the printing press really was an invention of the modern age. So up until about the year 1500, you you don't have opportunities to have like copies of stuff. Um, so in order for them to, to have a copy of something, it required that they literally by hand copy the document. And I don't know if you were like me, but whenever I was in school, if I was going to copy someone's paper, I mean, I'm, for positive, you know, in a good way, like the teacher said, hey, get their notes. I don't mean like copy, like... I right? feel like you and I may have come from different schools yeah, of thought okay. on that, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> but um, whenever you copy something by hand, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I would misspell things sometimes. Mm-hmm. I might look at it and go, you know, the way they said that, I don't really understand it. I need to put it in my own words a little bit here. Or... I knew something about this that they didn't have, and so I stuck it in there. Or I was copying along, and I just missed a whole line. Yeah. Right? Those kinds of things, when you're doing it by hand, are that's an easy process to have happen. And so um, that that process of human transmission over time, it had causes us to have to deal with that um, because what we have in our hands today, whenever we're looking at the original text of the Old Testament or the New Testament is not, we don't have any of the pieces of paper that any of the biblical authors wrote on. Mm. Even the New Testament, we have very early copies. We have a little piece from the Gospel of John that dates probably within a hundred years, but the the full texts of, of the scriptures we have, some of them date several hundred years. The majority of texts we have, for example, the New Testament, we'll talk about this more, I think, in a minute, but the majority of texts we have are a thousand years later. Wow. So they've, they've gone through a whole series of transmission year, you know, generation to generation, copying them or Paul wrote them a a letter to the church at, 
uh, Ephesus, and then how does it get around and other people read it? Well, it has to be copied by hand, and so it, it gets passed around. And uh, so that process, it, it it's one that it, it shows that they looked at these texts and they wanted to know about them. They wanted others to know about them. They thought they were important enough to copy. They thought that they were um, important enough for everyone to be able to have access to them as much as possible. But that process itself introduces some things that we have to deal with whenever we're trying to discern, okay, now what was it that Paul actually said? Right. And that's, man, that's just such a, I think, a harrowing thought, but also a pretty powerful thought on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to go through, like you said, right. a thousand years. And this information was deemed important enough to to copy and repeat, to copy and repeat, yeah. to copy and repeat and, over and the, a thousand years. And that the, in spite of, you know, we're going to need to talk about some of the variations, uh, but the overwhelming thing that I'm always struck with, you know, and I'm a historian by background and trade, so I have to do the, deal with, the, I've had to deal with this not only with biblical documents, but with all kinds of ancient documents, all kinds of early church documents. We have the same kind of process we have to go through for those. Um, but I'm always struck by how, how actually very consistent things end up being. While there are variations, they don't really change much. Yeah. Oh, you know, in the new, as you, as you're reading the new Testament, you see a, maybe a word that's spelled differently and makes it have a little different connotation, or you have a, you know, a line that gets added um, by someone, a copyist somewhere. And so you have, a, you know, that kind of thing happen. It, But it's still, it's very consistent. And as a historian, I'm encouraged by the consistency rather than discouraged as I look at these documents. It doesn't, that part doesn't bother me at all. Yeah, I, th- I think, I think to me, that's part of the miracle is right. the consistency over that amount of time. That's right. Um, as, as we're talking through this, um, the, the, criticism of text and as people start thinking through that uh, how just I think that when we criticize and I don't mean it in the negative way but just to be critical of something I think means to question it right and so walk through that a little bit of what what that means or what that might look like so when you use the word we're going to use the word textual criticism there are you know scholars use lots of different kinds of criticism we usually associate them with two different major sections of criticism. One would be called lower criticism, which is looking at at the different manuscripts we have and trying to discern what is the best text. And then we have what's called higher criticism, which is usually much more suspect. You know, they're doing other kinds of literary work or historical analysis or sociological analysis or whatever. But when we talk about textual, when we talk about criticism in this way, we're just looking at a text and or and trying to discern what it says explicitly. And so textual criticism or lower criticism, we're just trying to get at what was it that was actually written by the person in that process um, of looking back through all of those copies that we have and trying to do that. There's a, whole, there's a, there's a process to that. Um, there are usually there's some identified rules that the textual critics will try to use as they walk through that, um, that, generally give the best text. And then of course there's, it's, you know, you have to use discernment. Um, But generally if someone is copying something, um, there is a tendency 
to make, to smooth things out. Mm. You know, when, if I were to take your paper that you've written, not that I've ever done this, <laughs> but if I were to take something that you've written. I'm feeling some lower criticism right yeah, here. <laughs> so, sorry. So if I were to take something that you've written, my tendency would be to take it and then if, if it had bad grammar, for example, um, a word that was, you know, a, a split infinitive, right, or something, I would probably fix that as, as I was transferring it from one thing to the next. Right. And so generally textual critics would say, well, we tend to take the di- the readings of a text that are most difficult because we tend to smooth things out over time. Mm-hmm. So those that's an example of a, of a rule that textual critics generally use. And they, they usually follow a, a process like that. And so they will take and lay alongside each other different readings. They'll look at things like, you know, where did this text come from? How old is this text? What in um, is if we're looking, especially like in the New Testament, what family of manuscripts does it come from? It's because there's gif- different geographies of families. So there's a Western family of texts in the in with the New Testament. There's a a, a Byzantine that where most of the texts are, and which would be like a a Greek um, variety of. of, of part of what we would think of as like the Byzantine Empire in Turkey in that area. Then you have um, the Alexandrian, which is most of our oldest texts are Alexandrian in background, and those would be like Egyptian. Okay. Um, so you end up with these ver- different families, and we would look at that. We would look at um, these rules about which, diffi- which reading is more difficult, which reading um, tends to make sense of what's being said, and so you you look at you look at all the various pieces and then you say okay well we think this particular reading is the best one. Um, I, sh- I should say probably that whenever we start talking about this, we're talking about with the Old Testament versus the New Testament. It's a little different, right? Yeah, that's what I was I was getting ready to ask you just because I know we have this one we we know it as the Holy Bible, you know that we'll right. and we'll just frame it like that. But you have two very different, two very different things, animals sure. in in this one book, and so walk through that of how when we're getting this critical to that critical edition of text that that the smoothed out version, it's a little different in the Old Testament than it is the New Testament. Sure. Right? So with the Old Testament, you end up with the the majority of what we use for the Old Testament, and most of your most translations will use is something called the Masoretic text. The, the Masoretes, or the, and, and this whole, that word means traditional, okay? okay? These are a group of, of people who over centuries very meticulously copied the Old Testament. And as they, uh, as we or we now call it the Hebrew Bible, some folks will call it that, you know, because it's used by Jews as well as Christians. But that that text was copied over and over and over again, and it was done with with some meticulous um, attention that they even knew, like what the middle stroke of a letter was in a chapter or in a on a line or in the Bible itself. They knew wow. what the middle letter was like, and they would count. So they they knew what they were they were doing it meticulously, and so the Masoretic text is very. Traditional. It's it's a it's a set tradition. We only have a few variations out of that. As we look at the Old Testament, um, you end up with some different, uh, you know, a couple of different things that happen. Um, 
You have some other sources that we tend to look at. For example, there is a copies of the the first five books, the Pentateuch uh, of the Old Testament, that are were used by Samaritans. That we have early versions of that, and sometimes they'll use that to say, okay, does, how does this work? Does this read the same? Or there any? And so you see, but there's a few minor things there. Um, one of the more interesting ones is the Dead Sea Scrolls. See, the Dead Sea Scrolls um, discovered in the early 20th century, but those texts, they date very early, many of them, um, into the, you know, um, they're some of them almost a thousand years older than much of the Hebrew that we have elsewhere. And so how does that work? Does that, does that fit in much of it's very consistent mm. with the Masoretic text? One of the kind of notable exceptions would be like the book of Jeremiah. Um, and people may not know this, but uh, the book of Jeremiah in the Greek translation, I'm going to just go deep on this nerdy yeah. point here. So the Greek translation was called the Septuagint, which was done, um, you know, about 150 to 200 years before the time of Jesus. Um, it it was, it had some version, of, the version of, of Jeremiah there is about one-fifth longer than what we have in the Hebrew Bible we have. Okay. And it is organized differently. So, so some of the sections like the oracles against the nations, different parts are moved around a little bit in the book, in the Septuagint. And for scholars, for the most part, over time, they thought, well, the reason that that was is that they were, the, the they added to it, right? They they put some extra stuff in there and that there wasn't any ever any Hebrew even that was behind that. There was only ever in Greek. Hmm. And uh, until we discover the Dead Sea Scrolls and then Dead Sea Scrolls, we they were discovered parts of Jeremiah that fit the Septuagint's reading. So the scholars now go, okay, now what do we do with Jeremiah? And so you've got a word or a phrase here added. It's not like there's big sections added, but it's like it's just a little bit longer, you know, word, phrase, line, extra, right. um, you know, throughout the book. For the most part, tr- translations continue to use the matter Masoretic text. And uh, that trans that that version of Hebrew, but then they'll footnote um, some of the other stuff in what's there in the Hebrew. Um, so all so pretty much you have the Masoretic text is the primary source we have for the Old Testament Hebrew that w- that we use. New Testament entirely different animal, like you said. So the New Testament, um, we have copies. Um, that that, tra- that that tradition has n- was not standardized in the same way. In some sense, we are the process of standardizing the New Testament that the Old Testament had with the Masoretes. Um, and whenever we we look at the New Testament, we're looking at approximately today we have about fifty eight hundred different manuscripts that we look at to try to compare and try to figure out what is the best reading. And, and, and try to figure out that, that core text, yeah, that, what, that, what is, what's the core information. And so that, and whenever we, what you could you do, if you were to go out and wanted to purchase a copy of the Greek New Testament, for example, you're going to be buying what's called a critical edition. And that's where scholars have gone and looked at all those different versions, all those different um, manuscripts, all those different varieties, and they have gone through the process of discerning what they think is the right or best text. Mm-hmm. Now, they're going to have all kinds of other stuff there 
in the in, if you buy a copy of that, they'll have all kinds of footnotes. We call it the apparatus that's there in the in the book that will tell you this this manuscript reads like this, this one reads like that, and you get to see what some of those variations are. Um, but we are now in uh, I think the current uh, Nestle Alon version that is the standard one is the twenty eighth edition, hmm. and um, of the the Greek New Testament, and it's it gets redone because we have new manuscripts that get discovered. And uh, that process is ongoing, and um, because we we still find ancient texts. Yeah, and I and I think we discussed this a little bit before the podcast started, but that consistency is actually that we said it earlier in the podcast that that consistency is actually to the benefit of that even though we're finding new text, yeah. it's still consistent. Yeah, those, those cha- the changes that are from like the 20, I think when I was in seminary, I think we had the 26th edition to the 28th. I mean, I would have to really look to see if I could find something that was different Yeah, um, because they're, they're very consistent over time. Um, and I would also say most people, whenever they're looking at, they're not going to look at the Greek. Uh, most Probably the number of people listening to the podcast is uh, not going to have a lot of Greek scholars out there. Right. Um, and so how do they access this kind of conversation? Well, most of your translations will give you a footnote. Right. And, and they'll say, hey, this is the reading that, we'd, that we've taken, that we're using. And they'll say, other manuscripts say, and give they'll give you a different one. Yes. And you can kind of see what some of those look like. But for the New Testament, you have most, I think generally every chapter has at least one or two variations, some of them bigger than others. Um, Some of the most famous ones are like um, the story of the woman caught in adultery from John. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the early manuscripts do not have that story. And so if you look at your modern translation... And it has it like in brackets, and so yeah. some some manuscripts don't have this. That's why that's that's there. Um, or if you've ever said the Lord's Prayer and said, "Thine be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever," at the end of it, which is what you find like in the King James. It's not in most of your modern translations. They'll have a um, a footnote um, telling you that they've done that because it's not in some of the, most of the earliest texts. Right. Um, and so, um, you have, um, also kind of a, an example of a famous one would be the ending of the gospel of Mark. And that's, I don't want to get into all that. That one's super complicated, <laughs> but you can go out and look at it. Where did, where does the book end and, yeah. and that kind of stuff? Well, I think you see sometimes where people, I, I, I always equate this to tools, um, uh, like I would, I have a six year old and I would never go give her a pneumatic nailer. Right, you know, and hope she could figure it out. And uh, but a lot of times in churches, our our initial response is, "Do you have a Bible?" Mm-hmm. And and we hand somebody this this book of tools and resources yeah. that over a thousand years has been has been cultivated and whittled and and put to this place where it can, is a useful tool. But we don't have a lot of mechanisms to teach them how to utilize that tool. So I think this podcast is really these yeah. types of podcasts are really helpful for our people to go. Oh, I need to know how to use this thing that's that right. I have. One of the things so, that I always worry about is that I you hear people whenever I start you start describing this that uh, would say, well, 
that's adding to or taking away from scripture in that regard. Mm-hmm. And the the question is, is that whenever we look at a translation now that includes it or doesn't include, say, thine be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, the intent is not to like take away from scripture. Um, the intent is to get to what they think was the correct reading at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And maybe correct what was at, they think was added to scripture. Yeah, um, and so there, that is that's always kind of a, a, a question and causes people a lot of consternation yeah. as they come to the texts. Um, none of none of those things really they don't, they don't worry me in terms of the reliability of the Bible. Right, the Bible's reliability is not based upon any of your translations it's based upon what god did whenever he inspired that text in the first place yeah so and that and that same spirit that inspired that text is alive in you that's right to be able to walk through the text yeah. so yeah the if, connection if, of the two yeah you now the, the scriptures are in, infallible i don't know anybody to listen to this podcast that's going to be infallible right you know right. so there that's that's the other side we have to always take out uh, I tend to think I'm pretty infallible most of the time with my ideas. I think most of us do, but um, then I then I come to reality and go, "Oh yeah, no, that's not true." And then my wife reminds me, "No, you aren't right about anything most <laughs> right. of the time." Right? They're 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 good for that for sure. Yeah. Tara's it, now going to be very angry if she hears this podcast because I just called her out. So. That's all right. That's all right. You can send her to me, and I'll walk her through it. So I, I do want to ask because again, I think some of the questions that just as a pastor, I'll speak this as a pastor from that seat. Um, one of the things we get is for you know. So uh, I just got saved or I've been saved for a little while. Um, what translation do I get, mm. you know, or how do I find the best translation for me? Sure. Um, and so based on an understanding that the text is critical, the text is important yeah. um, and understanding that, but for the person that is picking up the Bible yeah. and and trying to figure out their next step, how would you walk through somebody or like what if I were to ask you how what's the best translation for me? Sure. Well, I'm gonna start with this. Um, first, every one of the translations that people are out there using, they all are using a critical edition to make the translation. So um if you're using the King James, the King James was developed using a critical edition from its day. Um, a guy named Erasmus, he was uh, a Catholic a philosopher in the Renaissance, and he he developed what was one of the first really bestsellers after the invention of the printing press in a copy of the a, a critical edition of the Greek New Testament, and it, it can, it's come to be known as the Textus Receptus or the received text. Hmm. Uh, he used seven Greek manuscripts that were available to him at the time, and uh, he made a critical edition out of that. So he took about the seven he had available. We're using 5,800 today. There's one difference, by the way, in some of your translations. It depends on what Greek text or Hebrew text they're using. Sure. But the other thing is that translations also come with a philosophy behind them. Every one of them has a philosophy about how they're going to do this. So some of the translations are intended to be like word-for-word translations. And uh, that would be like in New American Standard Bible is a, a great example of a 
of a very literal translation. They attempted to be very word for word, so much so that um, the English of the NASB, as it's called, uh, can be a little bit choppy sometimes because mm-hmm. it's trying to hold to the original language's um, way of constructing sentences. Um, but then there are also other philosophies besides the word for word. You also have trying to do like thought for thought, and that's known as dynamic equivalent. And there can this is on a continuum, a scale of continuum. So word for word, thought for thought, uh, you get some translations that are a little bit lean one way or the other. Right. Um, but like thought for thought, um, you end up with like the NIV is somewhere between those two, word for word, thought for thought. Um, the thought for thought ones, the most dynamic equivalents would be like the New Living Translation is it attempt okay. to be a thought for thought. Um, the a contemporary English Bible is another example of a kind of a thought for thought. Then, of course, there are other Bibles. I put Bibles in quotation marks for this that are um, paraphrases. And this is like some someone sits down and says, "Well, this is what my take on it." Kind yeah. of a thing. So, famous examples of those would be the Living Bible, and the probably the one most people will hear of about today would be the Message. Right is a a, a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. So, whenever you ask the question, though, okay, now which one do, should I use in church? Um, it depends on. I would, I would answer that question for first: Are you a pastor or not? If you're a pastor, then. I would encourage you to find a translation and be consistent with it. Stick with it. Stick with it in your, in, at least in your preaching, in the sense of what you read from the pulpit. If you can do, you know, you can do language study in the background. I would really encourage you to do that too, uh, so that you know what's what stands behind that, and you bring in other translations. But whenever you read the text and people are following along, I would really encourage people to stay consistent with something so that. The people that are in your church can also be consistent with it. Yeah, um, I think that's a true statement from the congregant standpoint too. The, yes. One of the questions that we get when we have new families come within the first few weeks it's what translation of the Bible are you reading from on Sundays? Yes, um, and I don't know that it matters to them. They just want to be able to follow along. Yeah, and I, I think that that's really important for if you're, you know, whatever whatever translation that your pastor uses. Most I would encourage you to use that. Um, and the, really the basic answer to that question of which translation is best is whichever one you will read. Yeah, there you go. So I think that the, we have a lot of people who say a lot of things about the Bible, but they don't, they don't read it enough on it. You know, I think that whichever one you will read and consistently read and, uh, so a red Bible is always better than an unread Bible, whatever the translation is. Regardless. Regardless. Yeah. Um, we've got another, there's another question here that I want to touch on. I just don't know if we how much time we have for it. I have I really two things I want to ask. One is, one is about the, 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 just the current collection of the books that we have. Right. Um, and then I, then I have just a, a closing personal question I want to ask you in regards to the Bible. Okay. Um, but... How did we 
So how do we end up with what we end up with? Because you hear, you know, especially now in the world of the internet and in the World Wide Web, uh, it takes about a four-second Google search to come up with an article on the forgotten books of the Bible oh, yeah. or the, you know, the random stuff that we see. And so how do we get what we got? Yeah. So how do we get these books? Um, it's, a, it's a really good question. I don't know that we often think about it a whole lot. Um, but whenever whenever we, we were talking about this, we're talking about the issue of what's known as canon or canonicity. So what, in other words, what books do we take as being authoritative? Because whenever we look at the Bible, we call it the Holy Bible, right? It's, it's special, that word holy. I think a lot of times we could translate that word as, in, in a, you know, a kind of common parlance that this, this thing is special. It's unique. Nothing else is like it in that regard. Its purpose is different, and it, and it has a quality to it that nothing else has, right? So whenever I read, when I read these books, they have a specialness to them that no other book does. Uh, I, I read lots of books, but none of them have the authority that the Bible has. And none of them even come close. Um, so the scriptures, or the canon, um, that process, as it, it, as it happened with the Old and New Testament, there were there's also differences there between the two um, two halves. So with the Old Testament, it was collected over time with um, in, in Jewish life, essentially th- during three different periods of time. And uh, you have three different kind of components to the Jewish Old Testament. They're what they call Tanakh. Right. And so the, the word Tanakh is actually a kind of a, a sticking together of three Hebrew words. Mm-hmm. And those words are the Torah, the law, the Nabim, the prophets, and the Kithuvim, the writings. And um, so that listing is different than the one we generally use in our Christian Bibles. For example, you wouldn't think about this, but prophets um, include books like Samuel, Kings, Joshua, Judges, right? Those are in the, the prophets. They're in the Nevim. Uh, But the writings include books like Daniel, Ruth, the Psalms, the books of the First and Second Chronicles. Are, those are in the writings, Okay. And so um, they did that over time. Uh, essentially, the Torah was closed as a section of grouping first, and then the prophets were closed as a grouping and added to it, and then the writings. And so even if you look in the New Testament, you see a little bit of that going on with uh, the law and the prophets, right? There were several mentions in the New Testament of the law and the prophets. Yeah. Um, in part because of the the section of the writings was still a a little bit loose and would take until after the time of Jesus before they standardized the Old Testament, the the Hebrew, the Jewish Bible Tanakh doesn't get doesn't get standardized until you know after the destruction of Jerusalem and mm-hmm. uh, seventy A.D. So you you have that that's how that grouping happened. Of course, there's lots of complications too. Catholics have a different list, right, than we have. Right. They have additions, extra stuff in theirs that we don't have. Um, then you have the Orthodox. They have a different one than we have also and different from the Catholics. Right. And uh, all of that happens as a result. Again, we mentioned the Septuagint earlier. 
The Septuagint has a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, the Septuagint has extra stuff in it as it was used by the church early on and uh, things that were extra there that did not make it into the Jewish canon, for example. And uh, during the Protestant Reformation, they, there was some questionable theological stuff in some of that extra things, like about purgatory, for example. Um, and there's, um, you know, they didn't, they didn't have any Hebrew to go behind that. So they wanted to, they essentially said these books are, were not inspired. They were added on. And so we were taking them back out. Gotcha. Um, and so that's why, how ours, why ours is different than say Catholics. And so they'll have like extra books such as, um, the wisdom of Ben Sura, or it's also known as Sirach. Uh, which is kind of like another version of Proverbs. Um, they have some, uh, one of my things, one of the more interesting stories is the one of Tobit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've always said that I think Tobit should be made into like a TV movie because it's a story about a guy getting some bird poop in his eyes and going blind, then his son having to go on a, on a trip with an angel and finding a fish and getting to use the fish guts to get a wife and then to heal his dad's blindness. I mean... I can see who, who you know, having <laughs> Charleston Heston play this this character. <laughs> but Tobit, uh, you know, an interesting story, extra, uh, that we don't use in our Bibles. Um, and so I think that what you just said is is really a, a, a key piece. It's an interesting story. Yeah, that's right. But, but not necessarily theological weight. Right. And even among Catholics, they would, they would we use the term um, apocrypha for that. They will use that terminology too, but they often are will also describe them. And if you get a copy of the Bible that has that in there, they they will have them kind of listed sometimes even as what they call deuterocanonical or second canon. So they're not yeah. the first canon of Scripture; they're a second canon. Yeah, and so they don't have the same. Um, they they aren't in there in the same way uh, even. So um, the New Testament, as we ca- we have the the canon of that. We had some books that very early in the church were established as being authority and were read that way. The Gospels, four Gospels, as four Gospels was very early on established. Those four, not less, not more, those four, yeah. um, which I've, you know, I've talked about that. I, th- I find the four Gospels, the fact we have four of them to be a very intriguing common conversation theologically yeah. and um, in terms of this this whole conversation about canon. Um, the letters of Paul, very early on accepted. Some other books took a, look, took a little longer for them to be generally accepted across the whole church. For example, the book of Second Peter or the book of Jude, or there's questions about who was author of uh, Hebrews, and that causes, it caused some issues. The book of Revelation has always kind of been up and down. Uh, there's been questions about it that, that ranged all the way up almost to the modern period. Um, where you had churches, even 800s, for example, that were forbidding that it be read. And so um, you've, you've still got that going on with it for quite some time, um, even probably up until about the 1400s, until it kind of becomes finally settled, settled. Not that it wasn't used as scripture before that, but it was, there were people make, asking questions about it up until that point. During the Reformation, there was a few questions about some other, other books like the book of James, uh, in that period of time, but it stayed in the canon. 
but you have uh, you have that that process over time. Usually, whenever we look at this, how do they discern what books? Because what we're saying is they're trying to figure out okay, which of these books is the are the ones that are inspired? Right, God's the one who does the inspiring. But now, how do we figure that out? Right, and uh, they they use some tests to do that. The the primary test that seems to be whether a book makes it in or not is whether it was used or not. And particularly, was it used in one location or in one part of the church, or was it used everywhere? And the books that were only used in certain places, they don't make it into the canon. The ones that get used everywhere, they do. Um, and they also are looking at other components. A really important would be like apostolicity. In other words, was this book written by an apostle or someone who was a, a direct compatriot of an apostle? Um, and so that's some of the questions, for example, about Hebrews, right? Who is the author? And so the questions about its its uh, authenticity or its ability, that's what some of the questions were along the way. Um, I also should point out a big part of this will also be, does this match what the rest of the Bible teaches? Mm-hmm. And so theology or what the doctrinal statements are, that that's also a big deal. And um, if, if it comes from an apostle and it's used by across the church, um, and, you know, they're probably going to also fit in with the, this matches what everything else is being taught. So you have some questions. People, even today, you'll, if you, you said something about the internet, you go on the internet, you'll find people talking about those lost books. They'll be talking about books like the Gospel of Thomas uh, or uh, the, uh, they talk about like the gospel, the infancy gospel of uh, James um, or the the gospel of Judas or something like mm-hmm. that. And um, there's a reason why those don't make it in. And the early church was not, would not be surprised whenever we start talking about there and be like, yeah, there's a reason why that was forgotten. It's not, it's not scripture. Yeah. Right. Um, the gospel of Thomas has caused a lot of things with that. A few years ago, the whole stuff that went around around about um, the Da Vinci code, you might remember yeah. that. All of that's based in this kind of talk about it, and you can you can look at stuff on like the History Channel. I, I would tell you that sometimes I describe the History Channel as being the pseudo History Channel because some of that stuff is they're using they're saying, well, this gospel says this, and it's like, well, that gospel was from four hundred years later, so so yeah. what? It's not like I have historical information to give you about stuff from four hundred years ago that's going to be helpful, right? Uh, that's better than something that someone that was there is going to have. So stop taking those as being the same kind of evidence. Yeah. And so um, there's reasons why we have these four. They were the they are the ones that were these are these are the authorized ones. The church never really worried about those others as being options. Yeah. Um, it, there's there's reasons why things were forgotten. We forget stuff all the time. Yeah. Yeah, and and for good reason. The for things, good reason. The things we forget, we forget. Intentionally, and so um, last question. I'm we're going to close out with this, and and I know for those of you to listen, I know this may seem like a just a just a ton of information, and it's one of the I will say it's one of the blessings of being able to sit alongside with you, Danny, is and to be able to learn myself from some of these things. But maybe you're sitting here, you're going, man, this is just a this is just a ton of information, and uh, I, I I don't really know what to do with it all. And so, Danny, I, I want to ask you just. You know, and and I know you have an immense amount of education, and like you said, your your natural propensity towards history and 
and learning and those kind of things. But um, why do you love the Bible? Uh, well, I love the Bible because the Bible is the only thing that I really can rely on is get to give me access to correct information about God. Hmm. Um, the Bible gives me everything I need to know about God and everything how it relates to God. Um, not that there, not that I don't come to know God and didn't come to know God through like the teaching of the church and my Sunday school teachers. Um, there's a reason why I was saved in a time whenever I had two Sunday school teachers that kind of really poured into me as a young kid that um, I was a difficult young kid and they poured into me anyway. Um, and that I heard, I heard my parents talking about the stories and my grandparents and uh, the stories of the Bible, the precepts of the Bible, and I saw it showing up in their life. All that's really important. But whenever it comes down to like what I believe and my doctrinal positions, it's based on Scripture. Scripture is the number one thing. Now, the tradition of the church can give me some support. It can show me some things about that. I mean, I think we need each other as we read the Bible. Um, whenever I hear someone say, well, I read the Bible and I come up with this reading and no, this understanding of it, no one else has ever come up with that before, we have a name for that. It's called heresy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so... Um, I was wondering if you were going to use the word heresy in sure, this podcast. <laughs> of course. Um, because it's it's a real thing, right? If you come up with something no one's ever thought of before, probably you, sh you should go back and question yourself rather than right. the entire history of the church. But I'm... I constantly, as I read the Bible, I read the Bible every day. Um, I'm constantly not only trying to find ways to teach it to others, which as a preacher you can't help but do anymore, right? Mm -hmm. But I also, um, one of the things I've been kind of working with between me and God in recent couple of years is finding again um, that I am a son of, I'm a son of God without any recourse to what I do for the church, mm -hmm. that I am his child and I have a relationship with him that doesn't have anything to do with the fact that I'm a, I'm a preacher or that I'm a president of, the, of General Baptist or that I've been a pastor or whatever that is. I'm, I have my own devotional life that I need to cultivate with God all the time. So I read scripture every day for that purpose, yeah. intentionally so. And it continues to constantly address me, right? I read a text and I go, oh, yeah, that's that's something that I don't have right in the way I think, or that's right. There's something that I need to I need to correct this way I've this attitude that I've had because that doesn't fit well with what the scriptures say, um, or it's it's something it's, it can be some simple stuff even like this morning I was reading a psalm that talked about. Um, you know, giving praise to God and thanksgiving. And that was in, in the text. It was paralleled with um, that I do that in the congregation, right? So that me, me giving thanks to God, me praising God, that can be seen like it's an internal thing, right? That I'm, I mean, it's something in my heart, but it shows up in the way that I hmm. say things to others. And so like even I continue, I journal every day. I journal often about what I've read in Scripture and how it's addressed me in some way. And so part of the things I put in there in my journal this morning was about, you know, I, I want 
I want that that my thanks to God to show up in the way that I talk to people today, yeah. and I, the people not not just to you guys that are here, but like outside my Christian sphere, right? And that I that I tend to kind of live in my little bubble, like see, searching out opportunities. I will have opportunities today to talk to people that I can give praise to God by the way I talk to them. Yeah, and so. That's the scriptures continue to be that because the Bible is a live document, mm-hmm. um, because the Holy Spirit continues not only to have been, been breathed into those words whenever Paul wrote them or whenever David put down that psalm, but the, those words are still full of that same Holy Spirit who is there with me as I read those words and I go, and God is still talking to me through that mm-hmm. process that that is all one thing. God is doing illumination right alongside inspiration all the time. And without both of those, then you don't really get anything out of it. So, uh, Well, Danny, thank you so much for your time. I want to just share with you as we close today, um, fall in love with this book. Fall in love with the fact that that it is both the, the kiddie pool and the deepest un searched chasm of the ocean and it's all of those things depending on where you are in your walk and sometimes with just the turn of the page in the bible Um, one of my favorite scriptures and 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 thoughts to always come back to is oh the depth of both the wisdom and knowledge of our god and how Mm -hmm. unsearchable his ways and his thoughts beyond us finding out that he would present to us through the inspiration of authors and through copy after copy after copy that was finally passed to me and put in my hand, that this same God and the depth of his wisdom and knowledge was for me to dive into. Mm-hmm. And so I pray today, it is our prayer here for you today from General Baptist headquarters and, and all of us here, is that you would fall in love with this book and allow it to change who you are to the person Christ would have you to be.